0: As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
1: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate?
2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We begin right now our coverage into a July 27th Federal Reserve meeting which in sequence with the last one and maybe in sequence with the next one is truly historic. A student of this, of the history of the nation's economics and the action of it is a former Richmond Federal Reserve president, Jeffrey Lacker, and we're thrilled that Professor Lacker could join us this morning. Jeff Lacker, I want to go back to one of my heroes, a gentleman from Washington University at St. Louis, the laureate, Douglas North, who codified the word ambiguity and also, did a careful study of the dynamics, the movable parts of our economy. All of our listeners, all of our viewers are drowning now in the dynamics of our economic world. How do we get control of it? It
3: has to do its job, get inflation down. Uh, it's the institution with unique uh, control over monetary conditions in the United States. Um, Together with the fiscal authorities, uh, they drive inflation and the Fed's got to do its job now uh, and uh, do what it takes to get inflation down. I think uh, Chairman Powell has been right in recent months, uh, since March, uh, to emphasize that maximum employment is going to be out of reach until we get inflation down. And we need to put uh, concerns about the labor market uh, and what it's doing a little bit to the side and focus on getting inflation down. That's going to take reducing spending growth, reducing nominal spend, and um, the labor market will play out as it will.
2: Your shop codified economic history with Thomas Humphreys, one of my heroes. I've read every single page he's ever written right now. Thomas Thomas Humphreys would be writing about comparing Volcker to Powell, Powell to Volcker. He's not Paul Volcker, right? So Paul
3: Volcker was a um, a great central banker in an age of uh, monetary mystique, an age in which central banks deliberately cultivated some obscurity and a distance from the public. Uh, they didn't want to be in the headlines unless, you know, they wanted to choose when they'd be in the headlines. Um, we're in a different day and age. Getting inflation down revealed to central bankers around the world uh, the value of Um, managing expectations and the value to that of being transparent and communicating about what they're about, what they're trying to do. Uh, Jay Powell strikes me as better suited for the age of central bank transparency than Paul Volcker in terms of personal demeanor. Uh, The one uh, big thing that Paul Volcker had was uh, the the backing of the political establishment in Washington and New York to get inflation down. They were fed up with it and they were willing to take the pain and he cultivated an appreciation of the pain that was needed uh, to, to, to withstand in order to get inflation down. And I think j uh seems to have uh, abundant um, political connections and uh, abundant skill in managing the Fed's political uh, connections. And so he, he seems pretty well suited on that grounds too.
4: Jeffrey, this is think- a delicate subject, <laughs> but you've touched on it. Mm-hmm. So let's go there. How political is this Fed right now?
3: Uh, so... I think they understand that um, there's nothing that could damage their credibility more than sustained inflation. Um, you know, they can take all the hits they want on, on employment and the labor force and climate change and and uh, what have you. But uh, job number one is inflation. If they don't get that down, I think they're, they realize they're they're political toast in some sense. So um, I think that's true of every any Fed, no matter what people say about independence. I think it's true of every Fed.
4: Are you convinced they're willing to tolerate a recession to get inflation down? Yes, I do. And they should. Jeff, what kind of recession? Because the consensus right now is short and shallow. Do you share that, let's say, more constructive view of things?
3: I'm tempted, given today's news, yesterday's news, to say a Mario Draghi recession, you know, whatever it takes, Um, because the... the, um, the alternative uh, to let your foot up off the brake before inflation has come down, let it settle four and 5%. That's just a recipe for another recession down the road. That's a recession for prolonged pain, making the agony longer and longer stretching out over years. That's not good for the American public. I think they realize that. So they're going to have to, they ought to, what they ought to do is stick with it until they get inflation down to under 3%, say uh, within spinning distance of two. Okay. And, um, Go from there.
5: Okay, so whatever it takes, what is it going to take? What rate on Fed funds? What rate on unemployment?
3: Good question. So um, I think the historical record is clear that they need to get the real federal funds rate at or above zero. Uh, so that begs the question: Right? So the real rate is the actual Fed funds, fed funds rate minus expected near-term inflation. And the best reads of that are about six percent. You've got the Michigan survey at. the New York Fed Consumer Survey, which is great, very good um, methodology at 6.8, split the difference at 6%. If near-term expectations of inflation stay at 6%, they're going to have to get there. If those near-term expectations start falling, then what we have in store is a rendezvous between the Fed funds rate and uh, expected inflation. Uh, But I I doubt that expected expectations are going to fall to three and a half or four by year end, so I suspect they're going to have to go higher than that.
5: And how quickly would they need to get there? I mean, six percent is still a long way away, even with the supersized hikes we've already seen.
3: I don't think the, um, I don't think slowing down the process does them a lot of good. Um, no matter what, whether they go, you know, fifties or seventy fives, they're still going to be in a situation where the effect on inflation is out into next year. You're going to have to make a judgment about when to stop without knowing whether they've done enough of or not um, based on other indications and other calculations like the one I, I cited. Um, and uh, so it, they might as well get get it done. Uh, they might as well get there fast.
2: Jeff, do you look at the path back from this inflation to whatever's normal, 2 3%? Let's not get into that now. Is having a smoothness, a glide path, as Peter Orzag would call it. Or is it kinked where we get to a point, we stop, we try to figure out how to lower inflation next, et cetera?
3: You know, if the the Fed tightens enough, I think we'll just see a gradual decline down. I think it'll sag over a couple of years. Mm -hmm. I expect it to be relatively smooth. I don't have any reason to expect any jolts, absent other shocks, like more oil price um, problems and the like.
4: Jeff, how would they respond, do you think, to that negative supply shock on the energy side? I'm, I'm interested in that, not just for the Federal Reserve, but maybe more so for the ECB on the gas side of things. I don't know if you've followed that news yeah. conference yesterday with Lagarde, but I think we all failed to establish what their reaction function actually yeah. is and mm-hmm. how they'd respond to a negative supply shock that pushed gas prices higher and potentially growth lower.
3: This is a murky area because uh, oil price shocks tend to cause unemployment, people think, well, you need to ease, that's a reason to ease policy. But if you think about it more broadly, the the central bank's controlling the real interest rate, which is the incentive to save and delay consumption, delay spending to later. And if you get a supply shock, you want people to wait and consume later. So what you want to do is raise rates, uh, at least one argument goes. So there's a case that you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean uh, not staying the course on inflation.
4: Interesting. Jeffrey, great to catch up. Jeff Lacker there, the former Richmond Fed president.
2: Right now, and this is really important, I line up Kenneth Rogoff with his book, The Curse of Cash. is one of the most courageous books written in the last number of years. There's our Steve Engel out of Hong Kong and the courage he has done in reporting some of the challenges of the Pacific Rim, and in securities analysis, there is Richard Greenfield, who was tarred in feathers years ago with a small upstart called Vonage. It wasn't funny at the time. Now we can look back with joy, and we're thrilled that one of the leaders on media, Rich Greenfield, joins us today with Lightshed Partners on the challenges of Mr. Musk and Chancery Court. Rich, just as a, as a beginning point, do the earnings today matter?
0: I mean, they matter from the standpoint of it's yet another signal that the online ad market is slowing. You saw it from Snapchat last night. You've seen it from Twitter. There are now just a building series of signs that the economy is slowing and advertising is slowing, whether that's inflation driven or just overall broader economic weakness. It definitely there's, right. look, there's very specific Twitter challenges with Musk, but the overall macro environment is right. clearly weighing We'll see the big bellwethers in Google and Facebook next week. But this is certainly not, um, these These are negative data points, both of them for investors right
1: now. Well, in this Rich,
2: I got to rip up the script here. Let's jump over to next week. Are we going to see the big boys, and frankly, including the Amazon advertising model, are they going to be diminished as well?
0: I mean, look, Google has been talking about YouTube bearing some pressure I think there's no doubt the connected TV ad market is certainly slowing. I think you're going to hear that, whether it's from Fox or Paramount. Like, I think everywhere you look, connected TV is slowing. The TV market, especially local TV, is starting to slow. The economy is weakening from the standpoint of advertising. Companies are, you know, companies are seeing top line growth slow. What do they do? They cut back on marketing spend. This is nothing. This is not a new. I mean, you and I, Tom, have lived through multiple cycles o- over decades, like, this is what companies do. When things start to slow, they cut their marketing spend. There's nothing shocking about it. The question is only how long will it last and how bad will it be? Is this a deep, dark recession through 23 where ad spend gets crushed? Or is this more of a shorter term phenomenon and we bounce back in 23? And that's, I think that's the big question we don't know mm-hmm. right now, but I definitely think you'll see Facebook or sorry, Meta, I keep saying Facebook, <laughs> we will see Meta certainly talk about a slowdown yeah. in, in, in a continued slowdown in ad revenue and probably give relatively underwhelming Q3 guidance. I don't think it's bad as Snapchat, but I don't think it's going to be a great, you okay. know, great outlook
5: right. for them. Well, for Rich, to bring it back to Twitter, they did talk in the statement about those advertising headwinds, but they also said part of it's reflective of uncertainty related to the acquisition of Elon Musk. What is your base case about what the verdict will be in that Delaware court in October? Is he going to be forced to buy this company for 5420 a share?
0: We really do believe he's going to be forced to buy this company for 5420. Kaylee, he signed his he signed this agreement when the the case in Delaware, which is going to be litigated on an expedited basis, he already lost the push to push this out. I think the judge, my guess is the judge is going to look at this and go, the entire Elon Musk case essentially rests on this question of bots. And did Mm -hmm. Twitter disclose the proper amount of bots? The problem with that, Kaylee, is when you read the merger agreement, it never talks about bots. There's no discussion of bots. It just relies on Twitter's public filings. And if you read Twitter's public filings, it says, this is how we, this is how we count bots, or this is how we count real users, but we could be wrong. So I I think when you actually read the documents, it's very hard to see how Elon, which feels like he's got buyer's remorse. He just doesn't want to buy it anymore, whether it's the market, the environment, I have no idea.
5: Well, to that point, Rich, what happens to a company if someone is forced to buy it, who doesn't want it?
0: Well, first of all, it's happened before. The the specific performance, which is being forced to close a transaction that you signed back in the financial crisis, there is precedent for being forced to buy a company. That's his problem, not Twitter's.
2: (laughs) Rich Greenfield, very quickly here, and I want you to take a broader Walter Pizek, Rich Greenfield view. Is there profit in streaming? Is it a durable business? Or do they compete it all away, spending $200 million on the gray man?
0: Tom, it's an, a, an excellent question. I think the way to answer it is right now, you are seeing one company make a lot of money, which is Netflix. Netflix is generating six, $7 billion of EBITDA, is generating a billion dollars of free cash flow, and is going to make dramatically more free cash flow next year. Everybody else, whether we're talking about Disney or, I mean, Peacock is losing $2.5 billion a year. Paramount Plus lost a billion in the last two quarters. Everyone is just drowning in red tape right now. I mean, this is like a a black hole of streaming because there's too many companies competing and they don't generate a significant amount of time spent in streaming. Netflix is 30% of all time spent streaming on a connected TV. YouTube is 20%. Everybody else is tiny. And that's the problem is they're all spending billions upon billions of dollars. And they're not getting substantial viewership. That's the problem.
2: I got 10 more questions in no time. Rich Greenfield, thank you so much for joining us with Walter. Thanks for having me. At Light Shed uh, Partners.
0: Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning, so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
6: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry, and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB.
2: now, we're going to look at this, at the president of the United States. And as John mentions, it is way, way better than what President Trump uh, confronted. Maybe age, maybe health, but also just virulence as well. Lauren Sauer is expert in this field, associate professor at Nebraska, their medical center and director of special Pathogens Research Network, uh, Lauren. I want to go to our youth. I remember my mother dragging me in for boosters. It was no big deal. There was whooping cough, tetanus. There was diphtheria, DTaP, and Tdap, and all the rest of it. Why is our fear over a COVID booster shot so different than our fear over getting a diphtheria booster shot?
1: To be honest, Tom, I think a lot of it is politics and the conversation around how the vaccine was developed. I think it's rare that we see the development of a vaccine play out in the public like this one has, where we're seeing every minutia of the stepwise path and where people are paying such close attention to the data that aren't scientists, that aren't clinicians. And they're sending out interpretations into social media or into the news media that might not be quite accurate um, or might be developing. And so I think changing the conversation about how vaccines are made and why we use them is really important and bringing the trust back to the process, explaining what happened during the COVID vaccine, explaining how these are developed and getting people back on track with some of those vaccines you just mentioned. A lot of kids are have been delayed in getting their childhood vaccines because of the COVID pandemic. So bringing everyone back up to speed and getting that population healthy again
2: what would you like to see in terms of action from politicians to get us back to where we don't die from diphtheria in one week like members of my family did in about 1905
1: I think a huge piece is messaging the process um, and why it's important. So we need to have all of our politicians come out and talk about why vaccines are important for their children. Um, we can't have this vitriol, this dialogue playing out in the public um, sphere, and and recognizing that scientists have a higher level of training. Clinicians have a higher level of training than, you know, the average politician on how vaccines work, why we use them. And so the opinion of an individual in, you know, let's just say, for example, a member of Congress is different than a physician researcher who's trained for 20 Mm -hmm. plus years to develop these vaccines, roll out the trials, um, and understand the data on how they work.
5: Well, Lauren, as we talk about the messaging that vaccines work, what a lot of people see is, I'm vaccinated and yet I still have a positive case and especially as we talk about a new variant now that we're being told evades all immunity whether you've previously had COVID whether you're vaccinated does that just raise the question of getting more boosters into arms or is that just essentially saying look we have to resign ourselves to the fact that everyone will contract the virus it's just a matter of how bad it is for them
1: Yeah, I think it's honestly somewhere in between. I think we had a few missteps on the science side of potentially talking about sterilizing immunity early in the pandemic, especially since we didn't know exactly how the um, data would look. And so expecting people to to change their viewpoint from I'm going to get this vaccine and I won't need a vaccine and I won't get sick to um, the vaccine is protecting you, but it's protecting you from getting really sick and possibly ending up in the hospital or dying. And that conversation is continuing to play out. I, I think one eventually once we get that that vaccine level really high in the population, the mild COVID um, will is what we'll start to see. So people will be vaccinated, they'll mm-hmm. probably get on a regular vaccine schedule, and it'll feel more like the way we, we deal with the flu. And to be honest, people get really sick and they die every year from the flu, um, but research continues on how to make better flu vaccines, yeah. um, how to make universal flu <laughs> vaccines, and so that we'll probably follow that same path.
5: So what's the appropriate policy response in a world in which people aren't getting as sick, but they still are getting sick. They could still be contagious. Does that mean masks forever? Does that mean we're going to stick with the policy here at Bloomberg where you're out of the office for at least five days if you test positive? I mean, how do things have to evolve in that scenario? Yeah, I think the first step is that we still have to
1: do a lot of work to get our vaccination rate up. So um, reminding people that, that they even if they have gotten vaccinated, that they need to get those boosters, uh, pushing the federal government to bring that fourth dose to people, um, continuing to do the studies on how we can get into that vaccine cadence and what's most appropriate. Right. And then I think as we grow that natural immunity in the population or that vaccine immunity, we'll see less and less of the masks. But for now, the cases are still quite high, and and I think masking, especially indoors, is quite appropriate.
2: Lauren, are we completely to where this virus is endemic, where it's like, it's here, get over it, it's not moving?
1: I think it is here, um, and I do think it is endemic. But we, we, we're we talking about endemic like it's something we just resign ourselves to and accept, when in reality, we have lots of endemic diseases that we fight tooth and nail to- Give keep us an example um, of that. At bay. So Give- dengue is a great example, um, loss of fever is a great example, maybe not in the United States, we don't talk about them in the same way. Um, but But across the world, we fight endemic diseases because they still cause significant morbidity and mortality. And so um, doing all we can to stop COVID spread and to fight COVID to protect our our people is still really important, um, even if the disease becomes or is endemic.
4: Lauren Sauer, thank you. Wonderful to hear from you as always. It's been a while and that's good news, I guess, but we've missed you. University of Nebraska Medical Center's Lauren Sauer there.
2: every week there's a fruit basket down on the shore and you know the the cake the you know the christmas like date cake thing yep cut a knife through and gallons of ice cream even cases of beer we get in sometime but then other times and i'll get the photo out here soon on twitter you get a blue shirt that looks perfect on afterthought because she hates the Red Sox as much as Doug Cass. (laughs) I hate the Red Sox. Doug Cass, thank you so much for thinking of me.
6: (laughs) If
7: you agree to wear that T-shirt at the game, and I will as well because I have one, obviously, Mm -hmm. I am now committing to taking you to the World Series game between the Yanks and Houston in the Bronx. That would be good,
2: Doug, except there's a problem. Yeah. You haven't seen me since I was 27, and there's no chance this bloated tick is getting into that T-shirt. Anyways, how about those Astros? I mean, before we get to the market, uh, Doug, quickly here, what is it like when when a team has their number Yankees batting 151 against the Astros?
7: (laughs) Take it easy. (laughs) (laughs) record is still six nine six ninety. They're going to yeah. meet the Houston. They're going to meet Houston in the World Series. We'll see. By the way, I am told that they're actively okay. um, seeking Soto and Castillo. And if that occurs, they're both Katie need, bar yeah. the doors.
2: It's a, it's on American if Soto joins the Yankees. it's well, I, I, like the Yankees are two and
0: five against the Astros this season. So yeah, and yeah, they're going to be sampling <clears> ball. I don't, know.
7: I don't know you obviously didn't take stats
0: yes okay. exactly a good point well, let's
2: look at the stat right now doug cass of this nascent bull market we're in right now what is the character of the up we've seen the last six weeks
7: it's been interesting i mean my my skepticism which emerged late last year has helped Seabreeze's performance. performance was slightly up for the year a little commercial but as we discussed uh, last time on surveillance i've turned more positive in june and i view that period as a likely low in the making, and my mantra continues to be mild and brief. Uh, in the first half of the year, we moved from a period of gross and excessive speculation, elations, elation, complacency on the part of most market participants, and the expectation of only positive outcomes to a period in which speculation has been decimated, investors have de-risked and de stock valuations have been reset lower, fear in the VIX was rising, and the general consensus was, Uh, mostly negative outcomes. In fact, and this is really important, the first half's disastrous market decline. What about a big change in sentiment? Remember the term nattering nabobs of negativism? (laughs) By the way, cue Bramo on this. That was the William Sapphire's term uh, uh, for a Spiro Agnew speech. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. But the the nabobs of negativism populated the investment scene Uh, and reminding me of uh, Helene Meisel's great quote, There is nothing like price to change sentiment. Um, (laughs) I think it's very interesting. People talk about positioning, um, which is a non-fundamental analysis of the market. Some say it's non-vigorous, but to some degree, this has been a positive, um, a position-driven rally. Position usually doesn't fit in my investment view, but it does at extremes, and let me very briefly explain. 80% of the market volume is quantitative and passive trading. These products and strategies... Worship at the altar of price momentum. They know nothing about price, everything, uh, nothing about value, everything about price. The other 20% of market volume is active trading, mostly hedge funds. They're the marginal buyer. So when price momentum shifts to the upside, as it recently has, the 80% quant strategies follow and buy. That other 20% hedge funds have been defensively positioned. Remember the B of A bull bear yeah, indicator yeah. fell to zero, and they're all off sides um and uh, so they come in and what we've seen is that we witnessed the dual impact of both passive and active players buying over the last several weeks I believe we've set the lows of the year that said we've traveled long distance yeah. in a very short period of time <clears throat> I sent right. you a chart um, in which this uh, bear market rally was plus nine percent compared to the yeah. prior yeah, yeah. is that is that what it was, seven is it that was, is that what
0: you call it Doug a bear market rally here
7: I'm I, I well, that, that's what people are calling it. Okay, what are you calling think? it? That um,
0: is this something more pronounced? You know,
7: you know. Let me do a baseball analog. Okay, please. Uh, the market in the first half of 2022 was like my cousin Sandy Kovex when he graduated from Cincinnati and joined the Dodgers. Both the Sandy and the markets were a mess. The S and P fell by over 20 percent. Nasdaq by 30 percent. Sandy's first two years were as horrible as of this year's first half in the markets. He was, I, you guys don't remember, but he was so wild, he averaged a walk and a half every inning he pitched. In 1955 and 1956, he only pitched about 50 innings each year, and then things changed. He got his mojo, he's got his rhythm. He got his control in 1959. He went on from 1961 to 66, having arguably the greatest six years ever for a pitcher, finishing his career with three okay, or less, four years. Doug, uh, so, so the mark in the last few, few weeks has been more like Sandy than, say, okay, the Detroit pitchers, Byron Garcia, what, what, who was the worst What do you say majors.
2: this weekend when you're having your $80 brunch down in Florida? What do you say to East someone... Hampton. He's in East Hampton. Oh, he's in East Hampton. It's the summertime. They Summer's summer. in on the Hamptons. It's, it's a okay, $120 in okay. brunch. Excuse <laughs> me. <laughs> Doug, what do you say to someone who says, I'm comfortable in cash?
7: Uh, I say to them that... Uh, that there are substantive and underappreciated buffers that are going to serve as ballast to the U.S. economy and are likely to lead to only a mild and brief recession and a less tragic impact on U.S. corporate profits than the consensus Mm -hmm. increasingly expects. Things like the absence in large part of the sort of leveraged positions and segments of the economy that have characterized previous deep economic cycles. Uh, Unlike 15 years ago and in other previous economic downturns, our banking system is far less leveraged and has sizable cushions of liquidity and capital. No one talks about, everyone talks about the problems, the woes facing the housing market. But no one talks about the sizable, unrealized, embedded gains in the nation's housing stock and also the large, unrealized gains in the U.S. stock market. And here's an interesting stat.
2: Please, one more.
7: Uh, Sure. (coughs) The um, household liabilities, the household net worth, is at the lowest level in 52 years, and no one's talking about that.
2: I, it's, I, I will look that up and research that. Doug Cass, what do you quickly? Ten seconds. Amazon for long term. You've published that. What do you got now?
7: Um, I wouldn't buy Amazon here. Amazon okay. faces a number of headwinds going forward. I want to own um, it long term.
2: Douglas Cass, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate. My T-shirt yeah, it that says, I, I hate the Yankees, <laughs> and it's perfect afterthought size. She will love
1: You're it. You're going to go to the
2: Bronx with that. No, I'm not. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keene and this is Bloomberg.